This week on The Futurists. I think the very first policy, and the one I really ran on was the majority of, you know, I think why my campaign actually did very well, is I had suggested that we reduce the budget for the military and the defense and def- American defense by 50% and allocate all that money to healthcare and technology and science. So instead of an industrial military industrial complex, let's create a science industrial complex. And that would filter out in so many ways. That would filter out culturally. Everybody would say, okay, we're no longer this, you know, warmongering nation. Now we're a, a science mongering nation, which is so much better. Hey, welcome back to The Futurists. I'm Rob Tursick, and I'm with my co-host, Brett King. And what hey, hey. we're interested in is finding out from the people who are thinking about, conceiving, visualizing, and inventing the future. We want to understand exactly what makes them tick, what motivates them to do what they do, and how do they do it. And this week, we've got a superb guest to join us. Uh, he is an entrepreneur, a business person who's started and owns many businesses. He's also a transhumanist, a journalist, and a two-time candidate for president of the United States. I'm so thrilled to have you here. Zoltan Istvan, welcome to The Futurists. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Thrilled to have you. Now, you've been all over the place. You just got back to California, right? So tell me about your, uh, your recent travels. Well, sure. Um, I was uh, in Germany uh, at the To Be Ahead of Futurist Congress, uh, speaking on transhumanism at BMW World, which was amazing because BMW World was <laughs> an amazing place to speak. And then I actually took my mother back to Hungary, who hadn't been there for 20 years, and she escaped with my father, who passed away. Um in, uh, in 1968, and literally they were kind of like freedom fighters, had to leave the communist regime. So here it is, the Russians again causing problems. But um, it was very interesting to take my mother back to Hungary and Budapest and let her see that. So I had a great, uh, great time traveling around Europe the last few weeks. Excellent. And, and you just finished a degree at Oxford, right? Well, I'm actually in the middle of the degree at Oxford still. Okay. So yes, uh, oh, wow. thankfully, because I love being there. It's like, once you're there, you just want to be a full-time student forever. Um, yeah, I'm doing a, a master's degree in philosophy uh, with a specialty of ethics. Very cool. Uh, it's we'll important have an opportunity for technology to talk about, to talk about yeah, both yeah. of those things. Yeah. Yeah, we'll certainly have an opportunity to talk about ethics uh, in tech and ethics in AI and in transhumanism. But before we jump into that, I want to ask you a really straight up question, which is, what is transhumanism? Can you give us your definition of it? Well, sure. And, and there are, of course, many definitions. But the, the last sure. would say that this is beyond human. Transhumanism is beyond human. But what I like to think about is in terms of technology in the body, um, transhumanists want to go beyond what is the physical form, what is biology. So we want to integrate ourselves with technologies into ourselves. And so it can be anything like uh, exoskeleton suits that might let you climb Mount Everest or even something as simple as driverless cars where you use it all the time and it really changes your life. But I like to think of transhumanism as the most radical 10% of the technology that is out there right now. And that way, transhumanism can always kind of evolve the most radical 10% of the technologies out there right now. And, and what you're driving at is that this is technology that would somehow extend or enhance or augment human capability. Yes, 100 percent with with, um, you know, the specifics and a lot of you'll hear this from a lot of transhumanists. Many transhumanists would like to overcome biological death as kind of a primary concern. But a lot, yeah. you know, the much larger field is just adaptation, cyborgism. How do we use technology in our lives like, you know, virtual reality uh, to, to to kind of become almost a different species or at least interpret ourselves differently? 
So, um, you know, we talk about technology, but you're also talking about the technology of biology, right? Such things as um, obviously gene therapy is a way for us to improve uh, humanity, but things like transgenics, where we might actually incorporate some characteristics of other species in our genes, as well as the cybernetics you talk about, right? Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, transhumanism can incorporate uh, genetic editing versus artificial intelligence and everything in between. And, there, you know, a huge push is for genetic editing to enhance ourselves. But I would say, like, if you really ask the 100-year future, it does start eliminating biology entirely as something that's more fragile, more complicated, maybe something that's kind of terminal and always wants to, you know, cellular nature is, is terminal. And so most transhumanists would say the, the far future out a century or so is going to be ones and zeros or silicon or graphene and things like that and not incorporate biology, not probably incorporate yeah, carbon, yeah, yeah. things like that anymore. So this is what they mean when they say uh, to, to transport or migrate your consciousness to a, a non-biological substrate. You're talking about basically transporting my consciousness to a, a chip like silicon. Well, that would be the end goal, something couple hundred years in the future, uh, you know, I don't want to, maybe it's possible here in 30, 40 years, they're already doing some experiments in Silicon Valley with brainwave interfacing and consciousness and telepathy and things like that. So maybe we'll get there a lot faster. But yes, there's no question that we want to move away from biology, which in the end is just something that kind of evolved. And while it's it's been magnificent for the human race and we've had a great chance to experience the world, whatever, um, it really doesn't satisfy transhumanist in the sense that we all die after it. And the only thing that really can carries on is our progeny. What we want is something where our consciousness, our sense of self, our identity doesn't uh, get extinguished. And that really has a lot better chance of being metal, of, of being uh, ones and zeros, something that's silicon based, something that's based on uh, where it has a longevity that's much longer than, than what we consider the frail world of biology. It's, it's really interesting, actually, that if you think about like the Fermi paradox, one of the uh, elements of the Fermi paradox is that maybe all intelligences are now AIs in, you know, in the, the broader galactic community, because that seems like the, the best chance you have at permanence of retaining consciousness because of the, the risk to biology. You know, um, it's, it's, so I think that's an interesting element aside of, you know, uh, we're obviously going to come to some fork in the road at some point in the future, whether it's 100 years or 200 years from now, where you will have this decision to make. Does humanity evolve into machine, you know, machine basis, or is there value in keeping the biological entity? And this is uh, certainly clearly still a debate amongst transhumanists as well. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And, and let me just say, you know, I, I think the AI age is coming, but it's going to be far shorter than people realize, maybe 15 or 30 years. Uh, and then there's something else. Who knows? It might be the quantum age, might be some kind of other age where things just really evolve into different types of, you know, uh, quantum matter, whatever, and intel quantum intelligence. But the point is that, yeah, it's going to go from biology to machine intelligence and then to something else and probably something else after that. But keeps getting smaller, more sophisticated, more complicated, more interesting. Now, to some of the folks that are listening, this probably sounds a little strange. Um, they're probably saying, well, it sounds a lot like science fiction, which, you know, is, science fiction is no stranger to the futurist program. We are happy to indulge in it. Um, but that's not what we're talking about. We're actually talking about something that you can see happening around us today. 
And you could argue that humanity has strived throughout its existence to transcend the limitations of the human lifespan, of our biological clocks inside of us. Uh, that, that's what civilization is all about, finding ways to organize people together to transcend the basic limitations of life uh, and finding durable ways to transmit knowledge to the next generation. All we're doing now is using advanced technology to accelerate that process. I mean, maybe that's too simplistic, but how do you respond to that, to say that transhumanism is something happening right now and not in the future? Well, I mean, considering, you know, where we were 100 years ago, certainly we're in the transhumanist age. I just think, um, you know, like I said at the start, that if, if you take my definition of transhumanism being the most radical 10% of the technologies, most of us don't actually have access to that 10% yet. For example, the robotic eye is something that's big on the horizon for everyone because it can kind of take in Facebook. We can do this kind of podcast through it. There's a million different things that ties directly to your, your neural system, you know, right to your brain. And, you know, <laughs> there's so many things that could come from a robotic eye. And you yet, can see in ultraviolet ways. Yes, yeah. yes. And you can see snakes in the dark. You, you can see, you know, if there's a fire in the house, it might wake up in the middle of the night and say, oh, there's carbon monoxide in the air, whatever. A million reasons that we would want to do it. But in, even though they're experimenting with it, and some people actually have robotic eyes that the FDA has approved, it's really not available yeah. in a sense that we can go out and voluntarily exchange our eye and get a better eye, even though some of those robotic yeah. eyes can already see more uh, uh, closer when it concerns like telescopically and whatnot already. But the point is a lot of this technology is still out there and only available maybe to uh, the medically disabled or things like that. They're actually, the, the disabled often get the transhumanist technologies first, which is which is wonderful, of course, because we can, we can help that out. Um, but um, it's not always in our hands. However, if you really look at us driving around cars, flying in jet airplanes, doing yeah. podcasts online, you know, I mean, we really are in a transhumanist age compared to 100 years ago. They'd probably think this is all witchcraft 100 years ago. That's exactly right. Yeah. No, exactly, no, I, I mean, look, at two of us are wearing eyeglasses, right? That's a mechanical yeah. way to correct for yeah. biological yeah. vision. Uh, you know, people have cochlear implants. Uh, they're now experimenting with all kinds of contact lenses. Some people have pacemakers, other people have artificial joints. You know, so bit by bit, we are where we can, where it's medically possible, we're starting to replace parts of our biological but, body. But maybe with, um, with machines. Before we look at augmentation of existing humanity, which is obviously, you know, part of this, you know, one of the side effects of transhumanism is going to be the elimination of disabilities, right? I think that's um, that sort of flows into your your conversation there, Zoltan. You know, um, you know, if, like even um, the robotic prosthesis. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of the work of Dr. Hugh Herr and some of the, you know, some of the developments going on there. But, um, you know, how do we deal with the fact that in a few years something like this bionic eye or a robotic prosthesis, like a, a you know, robotic arm or limb will be more advanced than our human limbs. And people may make a decision ethically, you know, where does this sit? Where if someone says, all right, I'm going to cut off my, my arm, it's a perfectly good arm, but I'm going to get a better arm out of a robotic prosthetic. Well, I, I think, you know, I, I think this, this question is already on the minds of many biohackers. I'm actually a little surprised because I had forecasted about two years ago that sometime within the next 48 months, somebody would cut off their arm and put on a robotic arm. And at this point, they're doing it for show. It's kind of a media thing. But there is a very solid possibility within seven to 10 years, these robotic limbs might be better than what we have now. And people will electively start doing them. And I think um, when you come to that 
point, it's going to be sort of like social media. There's a bunch of people out there that say, oh, I don't want to go on Facebook. I don't want to go on Twitter. I don't want to do this. But if you're in a job that requires that, uh, and so many jobs do these days, then you sort of have to. And I feel the same thing is going to happen with robotic limbs. At some point, if you're both in construction, you and your neighbor, and the neighbor can now lift three times the weight you can lift, it's got a robotic arms, he's going to be making more money. He's going to be taking care of his family better. He's going to be getting the bigger house. There are social concerns that will probably force us into the cyborg age, uh, capitalistic concerns. I'm not saying they're good. I'm just saying that this is the way technology has been, that those who use it often have an advantage and therefore they acquire it faster or in, or and first. You know, this, this is interesting as a policy conversation, but, you know, obviously you ran for president a couple of times. Um, but as you look at governments like, you know, China, um, the United States, uh, European governments and so forth, which governments are starting to think about this sort of stuff at a policy level? Or are we still still absent that in the in the public conversation? Well, I think for sure the Biden administration has done better in, you know, pushing forth technologies, including climate change technologies and things like that than the the previous administration. But I got to say, you know, when you really look at a place like China, uh, even though there's a huge amount of social control, there's, you know, maybe it's a dictatorship and these kinds of things. They seem to be very open-minded to transhumanism, and I and I I wonder if a lot of it is cultural. You know, we live in a very Judeo-Christian nation where yeah, yeah. people are scared of cyborgism. People are scared of these things, robotic eyes. Nobody, our privacy is such a, a sacred, you know, kind of thing. Um, whereas in China, they're just like, look, this is very functional for the nation as a whole. In, embrace this stuff. And so I feel like they may be truly the first transhuman nation and they're spending a huge amount of money on AI. I got to say, though, just having been in Germany, there were some wonderful things that I saw in Munich, some wonderful new technology. And of course, Japan is always there. So it's a worldwide effort. Effort. I just think to, to begin with, though, America has to really keep on the ball. It can't just be Silicon Valley always carrying the ball. It has to be a, a, a government that embraces us and Absolutely. says, we want to lead the world into the transhumanist age because as, as the, you know, as this great democracy, we don't want to fall behind. And we certainly don't want somebody like Russia and China to lead these technologies because that becomes something very dangerous. One of the challenges we face as a country in the United States is that uh, is this belief that somehow America is exceptional, right? We've been telling ourselves that for 200 years. And this faith in American exceptionalism means that it's very hard for us to accept lessons from other countries because we're supposed to be the first, the best, the biggest, whatever, whatever mythology we're telling ourselves as a national narrative. Um, but the problem with that is it blinds us to advances that are happening. So if there's a country that we view as an antagonist or a competitor, these days it's China, uh, then it's hard for us to take in any information about that country that doesn't reinforce that perception of China as the, you know, as the adversary. Uh, so it's hard for us to accept that there might be lessons for us there. Um, certainly there's plenty, as you pointed out, to criticize about China. But what we're missing there is that the Chinese leadership consists in large part of engineers, people who are scientifically That's literate. True. And in yeah. fact, people who understand how to build systems and maintain systems. Now I contrast that with the point you've made, you made the observation that most American politicians are lawyers and most of Congress is dominated by lawyers. And if you wonder why we have such convoluted laws and such a complex regulatory process and such a crazy scheme for immigration and such a crazy convoluted tax system, and it goes on and on and on, you can go through any aspect of where the government touches you, it's super complicated, why? because it's written by and for lawyers. It's like the Full Employment Act for attorneys every time they pass a new set of laws in the United States. One of the observations or criticisms of the US is that because we're dominated by 
uh, lawyers and, and legalistic minds in policy, we don't focus on end goals or outcomes. Instead, we focus on process because that's what attorneys are focused on. Did you go through the process? And you end up in a situation where a bureaucratic part of the government can say like, well, we did the 10 steps in the process, but no one's accountable for the outcomes. Now, you ran for president. You did it twice. That is no small undertaking. Tell me about your motivation. Why did you feel like we needed to change the national level and the leadership? What gap were you trying to fill by running for president? Sure. And, and let me just say, in, in the first uh, presidential uh, campaign, I had a policy that really was trying to restrict the amount of lawyers in office. And it's not that lawyers don't hurt for great, you know, something in society. They, they do their jobs. But if you have 40, 50 percent in Congress running the show, lawyers are designed to stop things. They're designed to look at all the fine details. And when you're trying to run a nation, you can't always just stop things with fine details. Sometimes you just got to get out in front and, and, and run with the ball in the open space. And I, I feel like we had more doctors, we had more nurses, we had more teachers, we had more contractors, you know, plumbers in office. I bet we'd get a lot more done. And uh, I almost wonder if there should be some kind of law passed or at least some kind of financial mandate where we support those kinds of careers getting into public office as a way to diversify our government. But, you know, when you run for office, it, first off, it's pretty takes a huge toll, both on your family and your personal life. And it's, it's a little hard to be on the camera all the time and doing these things. But I, I think the main reason I ran is because there are no politicians out there talking about the big questions. None of them are addressing genetic editing. None of them are addressing AI. At least they're not addressing it in a very specific way. When you, for example, had the presidential debate, you didn't hear big, giant questions about right. AI. And, right. and, you know, I can tell you- We from, barely you know, had a conversation on UBI and things like that. Right? Yes, yes. And I can tell you, you know, at Oxford, in the philosophy department, the biggest question right now is artificial intelligence. Wow, what are we going to do right. in 10, 15? Right. In 20 years when these things are maybe as smart as us who knows what's going to happen what are the ethics should we go forward and yet this would be something you would think leaders of our country would be mm. you know forming committees doing this doing that and instead um it's just too dangerous of a question because as soon as you talk about it you lose voters they, they kind of look at them the voters look at it right at it as they would look at me which was oh zoltan has some interesting ideas but he shouldn't be elected those are weird questions let's talk about taxes or immigration and yet AI is the most important question. And so is genetic editing, these kinds of questions that yeah. we can search the human body. It just, it's sadly, they don't want Amen. to talk about it. Well, you know, you've got, it, there's so many implications just to AI, the techno unemployment angle, all of that. Rob and I often debate that on this show. Um, but the, the, the ethics of gene therapy, you know, in vitro, and then, you know, um, you know, like, you know, mass, uh, mass inoculation, you know, like just, just think of the reaction to the COVID vaccine. And now you're suddenly going to be talking about doing gene therapy to eliminate Parkinson's or Alzheimer's from the genome, right? You know, how's, how's that going to you know, play at it from a policy perspective, but we are going to have to deal with this at some point in the next few years, we're going to have to have this debate. So the longer you're talking about it, the broader, um, you know, you can, you can get in terms of, of consensus building on this, the easier path to policy. So I, I don't get the whole avoidance of this. I get it from a politics perspective, but it is, it's like cutting off your nose to spite your face. And, and this is one of the reasons that I think China is, is going to have significant advantages in the 21st century because this sort of stuff they see as an a, um, elements to enable China to outperform the United States economically and intellectually.
you know, and, and yeah, so that's a real concern, they, they particularly it, when right? it comes to AI, right? When it comes yeah. to AI, the nation that gets to a, a real nationwide scale AI that embodies their cultural values and their way of thinking, in a way, that's a new arms race. Right? They'll they'll achieve a kind of supremacy, and everyone else is going to have to catch up. I know you've written a bit about that. Share with us your views, Zoltan. Well, no, it is an arms race, and I mean, when you talk about it, and this is why it's so baffling that America doesn't want to confront these things. We have an arms race with genetic editing too: super soldiers, yeah, eliminating yeah. disease, eliminating aging, and whoever gets there first is going to not only get the patents, but they're also going to have the economic uh, fallout from it, which is going to be massive. They're going to become these are trillion dollars industries, maybe multi-multi-trillion dollar industries. So it's imperative that an American, uh, America gets their first, that a democratic kind of nation achieves these things. Because I worry, especially with AI, the idea that you could send viruses out to other AIs, as they're already doing in cyber security warfare and whatnot. So if you have the upper hand, you can hold the upper hand indefinitely. In fact, this is almost different than the arms race, because the arms race was kind of like 60, 40%. You can still destroy each other. But in the AI arms race, it's whoever gets to the top ends up controlling the geopolitical uh, kind of environment entirely. And because it's not, you can't, one can't destroy the other one, only, only the top one can kind of sprout out its viruses and everything else has to remain subdued. And therefore you have this, uh, you know, this, this thing where it's not mutual destruction, it's just simple victory. And of course, if yeah. China or Russia gets there, and Putin has said this, he said, whoever gets to the great AI first is going to, you know, be that has the victory with all the spoils. So we really need to watch this. And I, this is why I wish politicians would take it more seriously. I, I do understand that military leaders are, and I know they're probably pushing Absolutely. the politicians. But at the same time, I wish politicians would come out openly and say, listen, this is America's game. We better be in it. Before it's we, an irony, be, isn't it? We're, we're the most yeah, technologically ahead, advanced society in the world, and we have leaders who are technologically illiterate. And you see that when, crazy. for instance, they interview people like Mark Zuckerberg. You know, when they, when when Congress calls those people forward and interviews them, it's embarrassing to watch our <laughs> seventy and eighty year old senators try to formulate an intelligent question. I mean, it's almost laughable, right? But these are our leaders. These are the people who are formulating policy. So Zoltan, what policies would you recommend that the United States enact that we're not currently enacting? Well, I think the very first policy and the one I really ran on was the majority of, you know, I think why my campaign actually did very well is I had suggested that we reduce the budget for the military and the defense and def American defense by 50% and allocate all that money to healthcare and technology and science. So instead of an industrial military industrial complex, let's create a science industrial complex. And that would filter out in so many ways. That would filter out culturally. Everybody would say, okay, we're no longer this you know, warmongering nation. Now we're a, a science mongering nation, which is so much better. And I think it's really a matter of budget. You know, 20% of the GDP still remains for defense. And I think, you know, the point of the story is. If you spend that for science, you spend that for healthcare, we can take care of real wars. We have a war against cancer. We have a war against Alzheimer's. We have a war exactly. against disease out there that we should be fighting. And we could win if we put the resources there. So that's that would be my very first policy is reduce the budget of the military, take the spare money and put it directly into science, which would definitely help America more than I can think of anything else right now. Well, you yeah, know, I imagine just, that's going to get a lot of votes. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, the military industrial complex, right? Um, but um, Zoltan, it's interesting, you know, that you were studying at Oxford, you know, you're studying ethics, but you're also studying philosophy because um, 
you know, I, I want to get into that after the after the break in terms of where this takes us philosophically as well. But um, in in the in in the time that you've been in the transhumanist community, what progress have we made here that you can sort of identify, you know, either societally or in terms of policy that is, is starting to see real benefit? Well, I think for one thing, since I've been around maybe 10 years in the in sort of the public light, my novel, The Transhumanist Wager, came out and that sort of pushed me to this publicity, uh, I guess, level of publicity. Um, we sort of have been tackling disabilities. They are actually being um, uh, eliminated to some extent. People are getting better. For example, you had an arm shut off in two, 2010. The neural systems weren't very functional back then. Now people can get an arm shot off and still start playing the piano with the robotic arm. So you are seeing things like that take place. I think a lot of the technologies are still in their infancy. Genetic editing, we've had a few, you know, like they had the thing in China where they did something with the two daughters and it tried to get rid of HIV, but then the whole world came down with a moratorium and it was kind of like squashed up. I wish we would move forward with some of these ideas, even if there are risks to some individuals, because the broader implications for the public could be massive in terms of saving lives and saving, uh, you know, saving people from death. And so I think in the real world, transhumanism as a community has grown a lot. It's grown as a movement. You hear it all the time. But a lot of the best technologies are still out there, probably in the next five to 15 years with brain interface, with some of the actual advancements that the FDA is going to pass with genetic editing. Those things are going to start really changing our lives. I wish I had more positivity to say here, but a lot of it is still, you know, (laughs) in research and trying to get through the governmental system so that it can be implemented in our lives. Before we go to break, I want to ask you one last question. So we've had a couple of different speakers talking about the future on the show who were concerned about the emotional response to the future. In particular, John Hagel, who's a legend, you know, in terms of his ability to forecast digital change and network change. And he's now focused his entire consulting practice. This is a guy who ran a big chunk of Deloitte and a big, a big chunk of McKinsey. He's changed his entire consulting practice now to focus on emotional responses, fear of the future. Talk about fear of the future, because many of the concepts you're sharing right now, they're going to instill a fear response in some of the folks that are hearing about it. Well, to be honest, I think a lot of fear comes from your cultural baggage. Um, or if you're, uh, let's say, a born-again Christian, then you really don't want a chip in anywhere in your body, or especially not in your brain or anything like that. And even if you're somebody who's not doesn't have any kind of cultural baggage, you still may, still may be afraid of, you know, a, 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 cameras all over the place that are taking away your privacy. I feel like one of the big problems in society is not looking at the history. It's really clear when you look at the history. History shows that the world has gotten better. People's lives are longer. There's more prosperity, less people are dying at birth. People are are happier. And it's always because science and technology has made it that way. There are vaccines, there are this, there's that, and people's lives get better. You can see it on any kind of graph, any kind of scale. So you just have to think, no matter how crazy the technology is, that graph and scale is going to continue. Now, believe me, when we introduced anesthesia and all these other things and fire, whatever it was, people freaked out. They thought, oh, this is magic and witchcraft. It's always magic and witchcraft. But the historical scale shows that things are getting better. Our lives are getting better. And that's what that's we true. base our, our, our content and base our feelings on it, that we can trust science and technology after hundreds and hundreds of years of making the human race a better place. Yeah, this is the story of humanity. We suffer for millions of years. Then we finally figure out a way to kind of incrementally make it a little bit better. 
And people can resist that. They cling to the yeah. past. It's like what we know. They cling, they cling, they resist, resist. And then finally, the science gets a little bit better and now it can be implemented. And what do you know? Lo and behold, it works. And then we immediately take it for granted. And then we complain about it when it doesn't work. You know, I experienced yeah. that when I was doing mobile video at first uh, in, in 1999, people thought putting a video on a phone was ridiculous. I got kicked out of people's offices because they told me I was out of my mind. By 2001, it was a thing, small. But here it is 20 years later, and now everybody's using video on their mobile phone to communicate, and we totally take it for granted. But in the beginning, it was preposterous. And that movement from preposterous to possible to probable to now we take it for granted and it's fully deployed, I think it's quite an interesting time. It only takes about 20 years for this stuff to, to grab hold and to really go to mass scale. Hey, All right, Brett, well, let's, we need to let's, take take, let's take a quick break. Now, you're listening to okay. The Futurists. Uh, I'm Brett King and my co-host, Rob Tursek, and we are in a, interviewing <laughs> Zoltan Istvan, uh, ran for president twice, and he's a transhumanist. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Hey there. Welcome back to The Futurists. I'm Rob Tursik with co-host Brett King. And this hey, week hey. we are interviewing Zoltan Istvan. And Zoltan is a is a futurist about as hardcore futurist as you can possibly imagine. Um, one of the main concepts that he has developed, he's got a lot of interesting ideas. If you look at his Wikipedia page, you can read about all of them. But one of the ones I want to bring up is about immortality and tra transcending the limitations of human life. And the acronym here is TEF, and it stands for Teleological Egocentric Functionalism. So Zoltan, tell us a little bit about the TEF. Sure. Well, uh, TEF is, is the philosophy that's based in my novel, The Transhumanist Wager. And basically, it, it's just kind of broken down through the words. Teleological means something that's of design. Egocentric means it's based on the individual. And functionalism means it's rational and reasonable. And so it's, you know, it's almost like a, a fun version of the scientific method, basically, except for the difference between maybe the scientific method and this is that it inherently, Teff inherently believes that there is a design in the universe, not one that's done by God, not one that's necessarily done by any kind of spiritual thing, but it's this design that we are improving. No matter how you look at the universe, um, things are organizing in a way to get us to a place that's more complex than where we came from. And that place for many transhumanists, the very first stop is to try to overcome death. And the reason we want to overcome death is because we love life. We think life is great. We don't want to, you know, we just don't want to die. And then, then it's kind of gone forever. We spent our 80 years here. So Tef's first and kind of foremost uh, thing that it advocates for is really that in this design, in this evolution of humanity, humanity into whatever kind of transhuman being we're going to become, we're trying to overcome death biologically so that we can continue this journey of whatever we're going to go into. It, it's sort of been this pursuit of humanity for the ages, right? Um, you know, immortality, you know, the elixirs of life, the fountain of youth. This is, this is, if you like, at the core of human existence. It's like the ultimate, um, you know, like 
you've got the big questions of why are we here, but ultimately the ultimate human existence is where we can remove death. And so there are, you know, as, as we've debated, there are sort of two paths to that. There's, there's biological immortality, um, but there is the, the easier path from a technology perspective may be technological immortality. Um, but where do you lie in terms of the issue where that enhancing or augmenting humanity could potentially create two classes of human? Because either based on the cost of these enhancements or augmentations, or based on, say, religious beliefs and or moral or ethical considerations, some people may not want to be enhanced. Um, and you could have like a fork of in humanity in terms of our uh, evolution. Well, you know, let me just say first, I almost think we already are in two classes. The, the rich on average live 25% longer than the poor. And then the, the things exactly. they have access to, exactly. good, clean yeah. food, clean water, housing, it's already completely, in my opinion, an unfair system, which is why I've been a big supporter of universal basic income. But that's another story. But so I think um, in the future, though, this might become worse and, and, and inequality is growing. So there's really, you know, it's one of the things I've been telling people, it, it, as much awesome technology as we create, if half the world gets left behind and we create a dystopia, we're going to look back and say, oh, we blew it. You know, so it's something like we all humanity has to go all together and um, you have to make all these technologies available. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm not like trying to defeat uh, capitalism or things like that. I'm just saying that there has to be a point when all of us actually improve uh, the lives of everyone and in order so that we don't end up the species that has destroyed, like all the Hollywood movies are just like that. You know, they always end in with some bad guy ruling the world. That can't be the case in transhumanism. I don't want to think that I spent my entire career defending transhumanism only to have a dystopia occur. So there have to be some kind of government safeguards or economic policies in place that make it so that all of us go and that even if we are two classes, um, because I'm not sure that's unavoidable. I would wish we could. At least the the, the second class would have all the basics covered: food, housing, right, things. Right, they would right. be very happy. And, and again, that's why I support a universal basic income. But I am worried as well that we're going to end up in a dystopian. There will be two classes, and that's going to be up to people to look deep inside themselves and make the right choices. It, it's it's yes. very yeah. I, I think that that question of economics, you know, you, you've raised it, so I'll throw it in there. You know, um, we, again, Rob and I talk about this frequently on the show, but, um, you know, at a certain point in terms of human advancement, um, there's only so much that capitalism and economics can do for us when it comes to these advances that humanity can make um, and the advances we'll need to make just in terms of climate mitigation and resilience and food scarcity and all of those sorts of things, they go almost beyond economic considerations that we may need to sort of think about, you know, what's the purpose of the economy if it's not to look after the basic needs of citizens? Um, you know, like you could argue that the American economy is the most successful economy the world's ever seen. But if you look at the basic needs of citizens, then you could argue it's a failure, right? Particularly in respect to healthcare and, and so forth. So from an economic policy perspective, you know, in, in 20 or 30 years, how do you see the whole transhumanist movement affecting the way we think about capitalism and economics? Well, you know, I, I think at the at the very core of it is 
technology improving the world. The more technology we have, the better the world is going to be. And the reason I think that is because it's technology and science that cures the diseases. It's the technology and science that might be able to reverse obesity, which causes people to die early. It's technology and science. I mean, you have friends who are working on splicing their, their skin with DNA, uh, plant DNA, so that they can go out into the sun and photosynthesize. Maybe there is a cure for the 6,000 kids that are starving to death every day that isn't about growing more food, but actually changing who they are. So I think that the quicker we get to the transhumanist era, the faster we're going to be able to stop suffering worldwide across the world that comes, a lot of it comes from our biology. Now that's rather grandiose thinking and radical, but in this sense, it's been very conflicting for me because I want to get to the future as quickly as possible. At the same time, in the meantime, I don't want to see all this suffering. And the same thing is happening at Oxford when I just took an entire week of studies on the environment. It's it's clear that we're, we're screwing up the planet. It's totally clear um, with climate change. But it's what's not so clear is how much we should spend on fixing the environment with new radical technologies, geoengineering, bioengineering, all these other things. And that's what is actually one of the big debates right now at Oxford is not, do we reduce our global footprint, but do we actually just put all our money and energy into technological fixes? And I have the same thing with humanity and transhumanism. Do we try to get everyone to the transhumanist age as quickly as possible? Will that mitigate the suffering the least? Or do we try to slow down and actually make it that everyone's lives is better? I don't have the right answer yet. It's just a big debate. Uh, you know, I think well, if you want if if you want to define what a futurist is, I think you've defined it right there, which is mm-hmm. we're all in a hurry to get to the future. We're just trying to figure out what's the safest and most ethical way to get there. You know, go Rob. And people are going to take different paths. I mean, there's no way to control it. In fact, I think as I listen to you, Zoltan, I hear you saying that there's a role for government to play. And some of the folks listening to this might sort of react to that because we've been primed to react to any definition of government being active or taking a role in industrial policy, for instance, uh, in a negative way, because we've been indoctrinated for 50 years with this neoliberal concept uh, that, you know, government should be small, enterprise should be free, markets should be free and so forth. Uh, That's been the dominant, if you say, you know, economic theory, but you can actually say it's kind of the dominant philosophy of governing, right? We've we've turned the whole uh, perspective of government into an economic exercise. It's all cost and benefit. And, you know, should we spend here and should we not spend there? Um, Where I don't think prior to the 70s, that was how they viewed government. Government was there as a check on the wildness of business, you know, the more uh, the more um, radical impulses of business and business was out of control. I think at this stage right now, with global companies that you know are so large that their 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 um, valuations exceed the GDP of most countries on the planet, I think it's safe to say we're back in the gilded age, right? We're now in a technological yeah. gilded age, and these countries are hard to man- manage. They they're they're almost Kim, unregulatable. Kim so Stanley Robinson the- calls them um, transnational corporations. I think that's a great way of thinking because they transcend sort of national boundaries and national. Yeah, I, I call them globe-spanning but, yeah. information empires. Right? They are empires. They're accountable mm. to nobody. The U.S. government is having a very difficult time formulating regulatory policy. It's an open question of whether you know our Federal Trade Commission can even regulate the companies at this scale. So uh, we're we're right in the middle of politics, philosophy, and economics, and I want to turn it back. To Zoltan to tell me a little bit more about your philosophy of government and your philosophy about free markets. How do you respond to a free marketeer who says, oh, you're just a guy, you're shill for big government, you want to control business? Well, I think one of the the big, and you you kind of mentioned this, is one of the the most important laws in the books is our uh, um, 
view of how we deal with monopolies. I also agree with you that technology companies have simply become too large, unmanageable, and they just can't be even be regulated. And I think maybe what we need is, and this wouldn't, you know, the billionaires don't necessarily have to hate this idea because in the end of the day, it's not whether they have one giant company. It's a question of whether they have maybe three or four big companies. But I do think that the government should step in with stronger um, anti-monopolistic practices that would keep companies smaller and keep them more nimble and let a lot of the startups in Silicon Valley actually have a chance to make it, not necessarily be bought out. And this kind of environment, this kind of playing field would be far better for the average consumer, in my opinion, than these giant monopolies that have become so big. They're bigger than countries. And you're right, they can't be regulated anymore. And, and they have often people at the very top of the chain of command, whether it's Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg or whatever, that are just, to my you know, opinion, eccentric and, and not necessarily you know, doing the best for humanity. I want well, people at the, at the they're, top. That could they're uninformed them. about philosophy. They have no knowledge of ethics. They demonstrate no ability to implement ethics in their business or manage that process. And they seem to be amoral in the sense that they're just about like, hey, we can do this. And we're not even going to think about the pros and cons or, you know, maybe the arguments against. Government's just going to become AI, just going to be a DAO in the future. That's the best way. You know, but well, that, that that process. Well, of you say that, Brett, but but how many people want algorithmic justice? I mean, anyone who's dealt with the legal system knows that that is a, a very complicated and nuanced set of arguments, right? Uh, there's no AI that can handle a court case right now. Yeah, no, I, I tend to, I tend to think that the way to do this is when companies become too big, they just need to be stopped. And people need to say, look, you need to break off into other companies with new leadership. And, you know, as an entrepreneur myself, it's like, yes, that sucks, but I'm still going to be able to make all the money that I want to make. It's just not going to be as easy. And yet for the consumer, that might make all the difference because instead of one Google, you might have four different kinds of search engines who are then competing and making the process better. And who knows, maybe with that kind of competition, the companies might become even bigger and better than they had. It's really just a question of, because I, I got to be honest, like given how I, I'm a believer at this point that social media might be akin to something like smoking. I bet in 10, 15 years, we're going to wake up and say, wow, uh, this is actually a sort of a, a disease and we need to regulate it on a real way because it's, it's hurting people. Lives. I, I see my mother who's 75 years old and she's on Facebook and she believes what she reads. It wasn't designed. And, and they know that. And maybe you and I and Brett don't uh, think that way, but there are so many millions of Americans that yeah, are being sure. And I feel like somebody needs to step in and say, just like they stepped in with smoking, hey, this is bad for you. It's bad for the country. It's causing division. We're, gonna, we're on the brink of sometimes it seems like a civil war. This can't be good. So therefore, it needs to be stopped. And I think in that way, this is where a lot of my sort of libertarian inclinations fall apart because I say, wow, you know, we need someone to step in and make it so that we don't destroy ourselves just so someone else can make a dollar. The broader context of sort of the transhumanist movement and these things you're talking about, setting policy, you know, reaching consensus, working out what is good for humanity, what is bad for humanity, um, you know, the humanity plus uh, movement and so forth, there's been some contention around this. So, you know, one of the greatest challenges we've got is just formulating ethics when you have such, like, just look at the abortion issue in the United States right now, trying to get an agreement on what the ethics of you know, um, early life is, and, and you know, and birth and women's uh, bodily autonomy and those sort of things. Just the ethics of that is a massive minefield. How do we create an ethical, you know, how do we get consensus on ethics when it comes to things like human augmentation, neural chips, um, you know, all of those sort of things? 
Well, I think to begin with, you, you really need to take it more seriously. And, and that's a, a tough call because how do you get someone to take it more seriously? But if you had somebody, uh, a president really cared about this, they might say, you know, go on national television, say, you know what, country's coming to a challenging time. We're seeing China do these crazy things and our, ourselves as well. Let's form a committee or let's form some kind of exploration of this stuff. Maybe an organization like NASA, except specifically that targets ethics simply. I mean, this is, you know, I, I'm part of the Uhiro Center of, of Practical Ethics at Oxford. And that's what, you know, Julian Sebalesco did when he founded that institute. He's like, wow, the world needs more ethics. And so hopefully we will come to a time when we have a lot more people dealing and asking these questions. But right now, everything's being so politicized that I'm, I'm, I kind of feel like a lot of the ethics is getting drowned out. And the field of ethics is just not keeping up with Moore's law, which is kind of the fundamental problem, is technology and science grow far quicker than we can even think about it. We can't do enough podcasts to, to talk about these issues because in Silicon Valley, the next generation of chip is already being born and it changes the dynamics of the conversation we're having today. And, and that I don't have an answer for. I just know we need more ethicists. So let's talk about the singularity, because where all this leads to this arms races competition, this ever increasing pace of innovation, uh, this all points to some form of superintelligence. Tell me a little bit about your view on the singularity. Well, sure. You know, the, the transhumanist view is that the singularity is this time when artificial intelligence becomes so sophisticated that, first off, our understanding of it can no, is no longer possible. It's just way beyond our human understanding. And, uh, you know, someone, I think David Kelly of Wired had said, uh, you know, the, the next five minutes will be more complicated of history, the next five minutes, than the entire historical uh, time before that. So we're talking about massive change in the singularity that is way beyond our three pounds of meat that we carry on our shoulders. And for this reason, it's kind of a quasi uh, spiritual concept in the transhumanist community. We'd speak about it like, who knows what it's going to happen? Will there be things like technological resurrection where you're able to re, re you know, re, maybe either go back in time or reconfigure, re reverse engineer atomic matter and print out dead people that once were alive just as they once were? I mean, crazy weird concepts in our transhumanist community. But the point is, it's really a fun thing to think about. And if Ray Kurzweil is right, um, you know, and he probably is. At some point in the next 50 years, we will come to a point when these machines become so sophisticated, artificial intelligence, that they keep growing and they simply leave us behind. And if we're not merged with them, and this is the key about the singularity, if you want to take place singularity, you're going to have to upload or at least have a cyborg mind that can keep up with it. Because if you can't, then you're going to miss it completely. And it could be happening in the blink of an eye. I, I like Ian Banks's approach to this in the culture novels. I think that melding of, you know, technology and biology and, you know, the, the, the culture series is, is what I would like to envisage is the sort of perfect balance between those two worlds. And also, you know, you, you had those technologically advanced humans, the augmented humans that, you know, saw the, saw their, um, responsibility of taking care of, you know, these other human cultures that were, were sort of more natural humans as well. But let's, let's get a bit more sci-fi here, Zoltan. We've got about, you know, we've got a few minutes left in the podcast. Because let's... that wasn't sci-fi enough. <laughs> it's all been sci-fi this one. This is great. This is a great episode. Um, uh, you know, looking out 30 to 50 years, uh, 
Um, obviously, the ability to download consciousness into a, a you know a, a digital construct to to use a digital avatar of ourselves, whether in the in the metaverse or the meatverse, as, as uh, others call it, and so forth, all, all of that. But what technologies or what advancements that humanity is set to make most excite you about the future? What do you think? Um, you know, in terms of what individual things or collectively could really change the way we view the human species and sort of our, our purpose as a, as a species? Sure. Well, let me just say, um, you know, for your listeners that uh, there's a documentary that came out on one of my presidential campaigns called Immortality or Bust. And uh, it juxtaposed this when I was driving a coffin across the country with my father dying at the same time. Here I was trying to spread life extension. My father was dying and my father died from his fifth heart attack. And so what really, I think, attracts me is, even though I speak a lot of AI and, and technology, is really when we get the 3D bioprinting and stem cell technologies and the ability to re recreate ourselves. You know, if it had my father been able to kind of had his own heart printed out or even an artificial heart, he might still be here alive today. And since a quarter of us are going to die from heart disease, this is massive. But it's not just heart disease. It's most people die from organ failure. So definitely I'm believing in the next 15 to 25 years, there will routinely be bioprinted organs that we put in our bodies that allow us to live a lot longer. And that's going to be wonderful. But the, in the in the greater scheme of things, we're, we're going to have to get away from biology and into something that incorporates um, ones and zeros, silicone, and probably graphene. Graphene is a lot better than silicone. Um, and so that will be the, probably the, the new material of the future, unless we come up with another one. And I think we're going to either be upload ourselves and continue to have biological selves here, or maybe the uploaded selves will help us. And maybe it's not a perfect upload. Maybe it's some kind of a compilation of ourselves. But the point is, I'd say within 50 years, I would be very surprised if we don't have little angels on our shoulders that are almost our identical personalities, maybe making really good decisions for us. They might be in our head. They may be just through a chip implant. They may be watching us all over because we have cameras or scanners and things like this. But don't be surprised if there's a lot of Roberts and a lot of Bretts and a lot of Zoltans walking around helping us do the kinds of things that we're doing, including maybe attending meetings and putting on podcasts. So I see one people thing people don't talk about is they think, oh, I don't want to have more than one me out there, but I actually think it's going to be very useful from a work perspective is from a philosophical perspective to have many of us out there, even if they're just digital copies that are imperfect. And so I see in a 50 year future, given AI, given brain implants, given um, uploading possibilities, that there will be a lot more humans. Uh, it just won't be physical form. It'll be much more digital. And those digitals will have lives of their own, sort of like family members that bring back maybe goods, commerce, ideas, art, things like that. And so in the future, I see a lot more population, just not necessarily of ourselves, our, our own, you know, mini me's, I guess. But um, it's, it's going to be radical in that sense. And I think it's something that a lot of people don't think about. They don't realize that if they had a chance to upload themselves, they wouldn't just upload one version of themselves. For survival reasons, they might upload 100. And that's really going to change the dynamics, almost like traffic in Los Angeles, something like that. Think of it in terms of, wow, the crowds. Let's let's build on that and expand it because, of course, we're what we're leaving out of this equation right now. You're talking about people replicating themselves, perhaps in silicon, perhaps in graphene or some other substrate. Cool concept, but let's not forget we're already hyper networked. We've been hyper networked now for 20 years. That's a baked in expectation that people have, and those digital selves will be living on the network and they'll be hyper networked, and so we arrive at the possibility of a networked mind. 
And if you want to look for one event that would really rapidly set apart the people who are hyper-networked and have backed up their brains to the computer or to the cloud, separate them from the people who don't want that kind of uh, technological enhancements, um, the network mind is going to do it because suddenly you have access to an ever-growing and ever-increasing number of minds. And you'd have thereby kind of a force multiplier on what a human mind's capable of. And no doubt there would also be an artificial intelligence uh, augmentation as well. And so you'll have like superhumans, uh, superhumans who are hyper-networked with multiple cells. Yeah. Uh, that's a scary idea, I think, for some people, but for other people, it's exhilarating, right? Like you want to get there and you'd be faced with that choice. You can imagine, you know, you would go to like the brain backup clinic and they'd say, okay, would you like to network your mind or not? Check the box. And you're like, why not? Right? Like you could choose not to, if you want to keep your stuff personal, but why not get superpowers? Why not connect with all the minds? It's like longevity no treatments. It's the same thing as like, you know, like, you know, the longevity treatments, like, you know, that question, should I get it, you know, my next visit to the doctor or not? It's like, why wouldn't you get a longevity treatment if it improves your long-term health, the bioprinting stuff, all of that? I think, you know, that's eventually where you run to. Yeah, I mean, I would Any of the scenario of the rich Methuselahs, though, these like ancient geriatrics yeah, walking yeah. around who've been backed up and have all the power and money and, you know, and, and I don't know, that's a kind of a weird idea to world populated with these 100-year-olds or 200-year-old people. But it's possible. Yeah, no. And I, I mean, I would personally do it. I just don't know if I would want to stay there indefinitely. I'm much more like about connecting with one other person. I would love to like the, the, the future of love could be so amazing because you might actually be in someone's mind and maybe you can then exit when you want. But uh, I'm thinking in terms of soulmate kind of connections, that could be incredible what technology could actually do. And I think for religious people, it could be great. You might actually be able to commune in real time with, uh, you know, with your God or something like that. There's so many different things. And the same thing with, you know, if you were, uh, you know, doing a PhD in archaeology, you might be able to immerse your brain in all the archaeological inventions or ideas that have ever been done and be an expert on it in a very short yeah. time and then really be the best in your field. I mean, so the future of these things is amazing, um, but the privacy issues are so wild and scary that I think that's really what's going to keep a lot of people from saying, you know, a lot of the ethicists up at night trying to figure out, well, what do we do about that? Yeah. So I know That's we're true. I know we're running out of time, but I just got a couple of questions. I, I want to wrap up with obviously what we can do to help the transhumanist movement and, and raise awareness. But um, where, where does this fit into um, the whole multiplanetary um, species thing? You know, obviously, you know, we could you know, our digital selves or our like technologically enhanced selves may be better adapt adapted at living outside of the planet. Well, I think most transhumanists want to get off planet. I certainly do. I think that's one of the great things about it. But I think, uh, you know, in, in, in real time, what I would like to do is, you know, I, I don't know if you know my history, but I sailed for seven years, mostly around the world. I was alone on the boat a lot. And it was just amazing going country to country, reading books. I dream of a day when I can go from planet to planet in my own little yeah, spaceship. Yeah, yeah, so that, that, that could be a possibility through transhumanist technology. And all of us then have this new world of exploration. The human race is expanding off planet. That's perfect. Um, but I, 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 I think, you know, whether it's a digital self or not, I don't know if I feel very happy that my digital self is out there enjoying all this stuff and not me. And that, right, that, right. that creates the conundrum as well, because you're like, then the digital self really isn't me. It's almost like my brother. But, uh, you know, I mean, it's better than nothing, <laughs> I suppose. But that's really realistic. I mean, if we're talking about if we can put a, a, a realistic uh, quotient on this discussion, 
uh, you know, look, all space exploration that's happening right now is being done by robotic systems. We have a space station, but they're not really in outer space. They're in low orbit, you know, so they're not really doing space exploration. The United United States and other countries have given up on that. Um, And that's because of the life support systems for biological bodies. That's what most of the payload is when you launch a rocket into space. So it seemed quite, quite feasible or plausible, I guess, to say that, well, if you can back yourself up onto silicon and you can send that personality out, that's the way humans are going to get to other uh, other galaxies. Mars no is, way human Mars is solely Mars is solely inhabited by artificial robots and uh, you know teleoperated <laughs> machines now. Yeah. So yeah, that's you know. right. No, and yeah, that would you know that would, of human consciousness. And and we, I totally support that. I, I just would be sad that it's my. digital version or robotic version and not me, but then maybe, maybe they'll be able to figure it out. Or maybe by then you could commune directly with that entity out there. And you're thinking the same thoughts as one and the same. So, uh, uh, you know, who knows how it'll end up, but I think um, either way, it's, it's going to be very interesting and it's, it's good times. It kind of brings us back to the point Brett was making at the beginning of the show, which is if there is uh, alien life, it's probably an AI. It's probably an AI and it's a machine rather than a biological system. Wow. Okay. Hey, great right. fun talking to you, Zoltan. Thanks for joining us. So, so really Zoltan, what, you know, how do people find out more about you and the, you know, the transhumanist movement in general? Well, with the transhumanist movement, I think it's just best to Google it. There's news that comes out every day, but there's a ton of Facebook groups, uh, maybe 100 on uh, on Facebook. So they're all transhumanism with some big groups. And with my work, you can just Google Zoltan Ishvan or my website, ZoltanIshvan.com, or I'm on all social media and I try to post every day something about transhumanism. So I'm there. You can find it. And of course, uh, if your listeners want, just try to um, Amazon Prime picked up this documentary, Immortality or Bust. Uh, about one of my presidential campaigns driving a giant coffin across the country. It's a lot of fun. It's very sad because my father dies, but it really gives a good introduction because we travel across the country meeting all the transhumanists. And that's really what the movie uh, was about. So that was a lot of fun if you want to ever watch on Amazon Prime. Super. Zoltan Istvan, thank you for joining the Futurists this week. We've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review that really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.